Welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints right here in North Texas. So saddle up, y'all, and enjoy the ride. Tonight, we're honored and privileged to have with us Caitlin Ray, a young woman who has been working for the last four years to provide relief and support to those caught up in the worldwide refugee crisis. For decades, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has helped refugees in many parts of the world. Beginning four years ago this month, members of the Church, in particular the women, have been encouraged on a personal level to provide assistance to refugees in their own communities under an initiative called I Was a Stranger, a name which references the Savior's own words from Matthew 25. For I was in hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. On her own initiative, Caitlin Ray answered the cries of the refugees, not in her own community, but by those in need halfway around the world. Tonight, we'll talk to Caitlin, find out why she does what she does, how it has affected her life, and what she plans to do in the future. Welcome, Caitlin. Um, When you began working with refugees, you were fresh out of college, home from your Utah-based mission, 23 years old. Take us to that point in your life, the beginning, you might say, although I suspect the seeds were planted before the word refugee was added to your lexicon. How did you come to work with refugees on the other side of the world? Yeah, well, my very first introduction to refugees was actually in Uganda. So I went there on a, a two-week trip, you know, the ones they always show that are like these magical two weeks. And it was a magical two weeks. But our second to last day, we went to a refugee camp. And it was actually more of a refugee resettlement. So it was kind of like its own little city. And it was just full of people from Sudan who had come over. And it was probably the highlight of the whole trip. I just felt something really, really strong there. And with the people and just the plight of a refugee of someone who is forced to leave their home. Um, not because they want to, but because they have to for reasons of war or famine or um, danger, anything. Um, so that was my first interaction with refugees. And I came home from that experience and I really couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do with that because I had seen so much and experienced so much and it felt like I couldn't just forget about it. And as much as I tried and wanted to, I couldn't. And so I started researching a little bit more about refugees and had a pretty remarkable and powerful dream um, about refugees where I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was on a beach and I was looking around and I couldn't, I couldn't see what was going on. I couldn't see clearly, but there were people everywhere and I was trying to get these people off this beach. Um, And I woke up from the dream and it was a really profound thing. I thought that was one of those dreams where you don't forget. So I wrote it down immediately and thought it was kind of strange. And a few weeks later, I was on my laptop scrolling and I pretty much saw in video form that dream of refugees on this island called Lesbos. And they were, you know, um, getting off onto a beach and screaming and crying because of the traumatic journey they had come from Turkey to Greece, fleeing 
from Syria, from Congo, from you name it. So I thought, well, I better go to Greece if that isn't a sign from God. So I checked into some organizations and found one that wasn't on that island. Um, and that's kind of where it began. And a lot of doors opened and opportunities came. And so I worked with a few different organizations over the years, but ended up on that very island and have since been to Iraq and have worked with refugees a little bit in Palestine as well. So I kind of glossing over the how to <laughs> aspect yeah. of your of your life. So um, how how does somebody get involved? I mean, you said you searched the internet, but then what did you do? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I think everybody feels and has different things they can offer to this crisis as far as helping in the refugee situation. Um, I know that not everybody can just drop their lives and go abroad for six months or four months at a time. And luckily I was in a position where I could do that. So I researched and I contacted organizations and I said, Hey, like, do you need volunteers? Cause I can come. And so I started as a volunteer and slowly then became a coordinator and then a paid coordinator and then a director. And um, like I said, that's not everyone's path, but I also, one of the organizations I called in Utah a few months before I decided to leave to Greece and I did a huge clothing drive. Um, I sent almost a half of a container full of clothes to Lebanon. And so, I mean, there's, there's things and those are kind of more grandiose things, but it's the smaller things like helping those in your community or, you know, doing any sort of work is definitely acceptable and needed. Right now, the refugee crisis is huge. I mean, we've got the Burmese population of people and we have the Rohingya uh, refugees and we've got the East African and West African refugees and the Syrians and the Iraqis. And so it's kind of overwhelming to me, if I'm being completely honest, honest, because I, I just don't, I don't really care exactly where they're from. I just want to help where I can the most. But I, I will say that having been in Greece for as long as I have, I did develop a pretty close connection and relationship with especially the countries that were represented in those camps. So mostly Middle Eastern. So Afghani or Arab were the majority. And then also some Congolese. So that those are what I would say are like, Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot of their languages. I understand their cultures a little bit better. And so I feel like I can better assist and help. So that kind of made my decision to go to Palestine and to Iraq and so forth. Wow. So, you know, you really um, intrigued me, Caitlin, because <laughs> this is so foreign to anything that, that I would think to do right. in my life because I kind of tend to be as play it safe you know and don't right. really I used you know. to be that way <laughs> uh -huh. so has it ever been a fearful experience I'd say once I'm there no but the anticipation of going there and the unknown can be really scary um, now Greece feels like home to me if I'm being completely honest sometimes more so than being here in the United States uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, but when I went to Palestine when I went to Iraq there was definitely some feelings of like this is a completely new environment. I don't know anybody. Um, don't speak the language. Yeah, I don't speak the don't language fluently. Like I'm pretty you much the opposite <laughs> looking as they do. Um, so yeah, there's there's more the technical fear of like, what if I can't get a SIM card and I don't have a way to talk to people? But 
that's almost part of the adventure. Yeah. I've grown to love it and it doesn't scare me as much as it mm-hmm. did in the beginning. So how much does your faith factor into what you do? Oh, a huge part. Uh, I think without my faith, I would have stopped doing this a long time ago. Um, mostly just because it's easy for me, just personally speaking, to um, to see how when, when you see people suffer to the degree that I've seen, it's easy to say and be angry at God. Mm-hmm. For me, in the beginning, it was. Yeah. And I think... Um, if I had continued to let that anger take control of my life, I would have been done a long time ago. But I've been able to find some beautiful and remarkable moments amidst the suffering and the ugliness of it. Uh, the camps I've been in have been horrific at different times. There's also been times where it's been, you know, the happiest moments. But um, without the understanding of God's plan for his children and that he truly does love each and every single one of his children and that he doesn't want us to suffer, um, I think I would have broken a long time ago. Yeah. So um, is there a um, story that you could share from your experience that's that was one of the good, good times, one of the things that just... Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I have one. Um, there was one particular day when just things weren't going well at all. Things in the camp were really rough because of the overcrowding and the bad conditions. There's often fighting. Um, it can be violent. It can be, it's just sad, you know, and it was really cold that day and people were intense and, you know, we we're dealing with problem after problem after problem. And here another woman came with another big problem and she had just come gotten to the island a few days ago had come from Turkey and had this little girl she was adorable she was about two years old and she was alone and she was just beside herself sitting on the ground uh, sobbing and so I thought I don't know if I can handle one more person's problems if I was if I'm being honest in that moment I just didn't know if I could but I was like, well, if not me, then who? Because there really was no one else. So I went over there, I put my arm around her and, you know, just let her cry on my shoulder for a few minutes and went and got a translator and figured out that she had lost $200. And these $200 were all she had left. And it was what she was going to use. And she had saved it for months and months, and months to pay for this special formula for her baby. Because her baby has really pro- a lot of health problems and the camps don't give you money for formula or for anything really. Um, and so she was, like I said, just beside herself. And so we figured out, you know, what the problem was. And um, she had gone to another organization to get a shower. Uh, it was called Showers, Showers for Days, something. I can't remember the name of the organization. But so I got in my car and I drove her over there to see if we could find this missing $200. So we searched everywhere in this organization, in the bathroom and everything, and couldn't find it. And at this point, I'm like, well, I'll just give her 200 of my dollars, like, yeah. you know, which we're really not supposed to do. But she was alone and very vulnerable. And I was worried about her and I didn't want her daughter to suffer. So we got out into the car and I just was like, praying. I was like, God, you have to help me because either I'm going to give her this $200 or you're going to find a way for there to be $200. And I had a pretty strong prompting that I needed to go back inside and look in the trash can. So I went back inside 
And I'm not really that squeamish of a person, (laughs) but going through women's trash cans from refugees who have not showered for days, sometimes weeks, was pretty mortifying to me. So I got the trash can and I'm just digging through it. And there at the very bottom in one of the tissues was her $200. And she had shoved it in her shirt. And when she had taken it off to shower, it had fallen in the trash or she had thrown it. And, you know, it was just like this amazing moment. And to see this woman's reaction when we gave her and told her we found it. I mean, she was just beside herself with happiness. And it was just a beautiful moment that like God is aware, even in these small little details. And sometimes we forget to see that again amidst all the suffering. But that day it was a win. (laughs) There were a lot of losses, but that day was a win. I imagine those kinds of experiences though must fortify you to some degree and inoculate you against the grimmer aspects of your work. Um, Did you mainly work with uh, the women and children or did you work with the men too? Uh, What was your favorite group? That is a good question. (laughs) Probably some of my favorite groups that I worked with, I worked with all of them for starters. But my very first time in Greece, I got to work with just the men. And that was kind of a new experience. I mean, I grew up. I I find that remarkable. Yeah. (laughs) I grew up with all brothers. So I was like, okay, I can do this. But um, I had gone into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be with the women and the children. We always hear about the women and the children. Um, And originally, that's why I was there. I was there to teach piano. And really, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of pianos in refugee. No, <laughs> but we, we wanted to give them something to do. Uh-huh. People are just so bored. They're mm-hmm. just incredibly bored. They just sit in camps and there's no education. And so, you know, I went to go and teach piano. And we also did many other projects. We worked in warehouses. And anyway, about, I'd say a little less than halfway through my time there, we noticed that the men were becoming more and more violent to their wives and their children because of the stress of what they were doing with. I was working with a very specific population of people who had been through a genocide in Iraq. They're called Yazidis. And um, so we kind of got together and decided to really focus on the men and how we could help them so that they in turn could better support and care for their families. And I think we forget about the men sometimes because they're supposed to be the strong ones who carry the burdens. But it was amazing to see the transformation once we started doing activities for them. And I got really close to them. They were kind of like all my dads, <laughs> my brothers, and they still call me and, you know, tell me hello, daughter. And I, I love them genuinely. So that was probably one of my favorites as well as I love kids. I always have and um, done many, many projects with kids. But recently, this last summer, I was on the island of Samos in Greece. And they were in need of a a coordinator for their kids' activities. And I got to do that for a few weeks. And it was magical because these kids had not had that before much. So just providing small little crafts and a football game and, you know, anything where they could do something constructive with their time instead of getting into trouble and being bored and remembering all that they've been through. So it was a challenge, Mm -hmm. but a good one. Um, Now, your um, volunteer and aid work hasn't only been with refugees. You've also been involved with um, development in various countries, Um, haven't you, Caitlin? Yeah, one of the other causes I've been really involved with is learning and working for an organization that was very involved in development, development work. So 
working in other countries, working with people who maybe don't have as much access to develop their lives in matters of education, um, health, or business in any of those areas. So your experience in helping either the refugees or those in developing countries is far more broad-based and multifaceted than one might at first expect. Tell us a little bit about your development work. What countries um, were you involved in, in developing? Yeah, so I actually went to a few different countries, but the one I spent the most time in was Nepal. Okay, Nepal. You Let me orient myself on the map. You've um, now left Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, and you're now in Asia. Um, Nepal is between India and Tibet, right? In the Himalayan mountains, Mount Everest, Kathmandu. Um, what, what organization were you working for when you went to Nepal? Uh, the organization was called Help International. So I actually started as a volunteer. And then um, after a little while, I was the program director of that organization. Um, one of my favorite experiences where it's actually one of my most treasured spiritual experiences um, was when I was in Nepal, I was, I was living in an orphanage, not an orphanage, but a, a shelter for women and children who had been sexually trafficked and assaulted. And um, it was one of my favorite moments ever. But we were sitting down and each night, these girls, they're all Hindu. They're all of the Hindu religion. Well, actually, a few of them were Muslim. But each night they go upstairs and they have this prayer room. And all the girls line up and they're from the ages, I think the youngest was two or three up to 25 or older. And um, what they do is they sit and they sing songs and it's their prayers to God. And one of the songs um, is really powerful. And basically what it says in Nepali is it says, um, God, I'm here. I'm reaching for you. Do you hear me? Because I want to have a relationship with you. And, you know, I'd always thought it was a special song, but when I learned the meaning and I was sitting there and looking around at the faces of these beautiful, pure children who have been through the worst that life can offer and seeing their sweet souls and hearts praying to God because they want a relationship with him, it was so powerful. And I mean, not a, every volunteer that's in that room has tears streaming down their faces because of the pureness of it. And I can't deny that what they believe is true because they feel it and they have and they want a relationship with God. And I think that I can learn a lot from them. Wow, that's so beautiful and, and true. It occurs to me, Caitlin, that um, being traveling the world like you do, um, you're exposed to so many different threats, um, not just through, you know, socioeconomic threats, but but through um, health, health threats, have you, did you ever encounter any um, problems in that area? I did get really, really sick, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, especially in Nepal, I think, just because the food and the water wasn't always the most sanitary, and I was working my body really, really hard. Nepal is a very extremely beautiful country, more beautiful than you can possibly imagine, um, but it's full of lots of hills and mountains, as we know, Mount Everest. And 
Um, it also is one of the most, uh, has some of the most, wor- the, the worst air quality in the world. Really? In the capital of Kathmandu. So a mixture of all of that. And I, I got really sick. So you had like pneumonia? Or? No, I actually, I got bronchitis. I was, um, it was actually right before I decided to um, hike to Everest Base Camp. So I got bronchitis a few That's days before. That's something that you train for. I mean, people train for that, right? Yeah. Oh, well, they should. Let's put it that <laughs> way. I did not. Oh, um, wow. It was. Yeah. I should have, but I was very. So blessed. you did that sick. I did. Yeah. So we had we had decided to do it maybe a month and a half before, and I two nights before I. Went to the doctor and they said I had bronchitis and I had spent so much money on new gear and the airplane and uh, changed my flight tickets home and I was like I'm I'm not backing down <laughs> I'm doing this so got a blessing and went right on my way. You are definitely intrepid, Caitlin. I don't know how your mother feels, but you are intrepid. Um, let's get back a little bit to the mechanics of volunteering to work with the refugees. Um, so um, there are people like you that are like like part of the structure of these organizations. And then you fill it in with people that come just for short periods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes this organization I work for, particularly some trips, you would say, oh, can you go for two, four or six weeks? And some would be like, oh, you can either go six weeks or 12 weeks. So it depended on the location and what the needs were. So my job sometimes was to go in and to help set up projects with the coordinators. Um, basically what the communities needed at the time. So if we go into community, we talk to the community leaders and they say, hey, look, everybody's getting sick because of this reason. Um, in Fiji, one of the biggest issues they had was diabetes. And so they said, okay, what can we do to try and help this community? So they spoke with those in the community and they decided, oh, we're going to start building gardens so that people can have more nutritious food so that it's not just so sugar-based or, you know, those, those are the kind of things that we would work on as projects where we were completely intertwined with the community. Because otherwise, once those projects end and we leave, nothing happens and they go back to the way they were. So training and empowering the local people so that they can continue these projects when we're not there. Is it hard to leave? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's the hardest part of all of it for me personally. Definitely has been from the beginning. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I always tell, told my volunteers before they left um, sometimes when you leave as a volunteer, like we talked about a little bit before, it's it's hard to leave. It's hard to leave the people you love. It's hard to leave uh, feeling like you're kind of abandoning these people in this difficult situation. But I would tell my volunteers that if you go away with nothing, I hope you just go away knowing and understanding the plight of a refugee and that you can erase some of the negative stigmas that they receive here in the United States in some ways. Um, that you become a defender of them and a fighter for them, for their hopefully someday return to a normal, beautiful, happy life. And whether that just means being a listening ear or, you know, saying if someone is saying some sort of negative thing about refugees or about their religion, that you stand up for them. Tell them, no, that's not correct. 
These are good people who we know are just like us in most ways. They have families. They want to be happy. They had successful lives, businesses, careers. They're just like you and me. They're just unfortunately born in a climate and a place that brought about a lot of destruction and war. And so anyway, I just, I would hope that we can see them the way that we see those we love the most and that they're just like us and we, they deserve that at least. I'm going to ask you um, an unanswerable question, but in my ignorance, I'm going to ask you anyway, where do you think most refugees see um, the end point? What is it that they strive for? What is their greatest hope? And I'm sure that's different for every individual, but um, but if you could give them a voice, what is it that you would say for them? I mean, as far as where refugees see themselves, many of them look to places in the Western world as being their happy place. They see Europe or they see the United States or Canada as like their goal. That's where I have to make it because that's where I'll be safe. And it's sad that, you know, the Middle East and some of these parts of Africa and Asia are in such turmoil that they feel like they can't provide that at, at their own homes. And they can't right now because of it's not safe for them. And so I don't, I don't really know. I don't see this crisis becoming any smaller anytime soon because the conflicts are still raging and they're getting worse and worse each day. And we know that this is kind of the signs of the second coming, that there will be wars and rumors of wars and tempests. And, you know, it's only going to get worse, but I think we have a right and a duty to protect those who are searching for safety. And I don't know exactly what that means. We could get into politics of should we open our borders or shouldn't we? That's, that's not for me to say, but we can definitely support in other ways. So you try not to get involved in any other political side of things. I try, <laughs> but also it's, it's hard not to sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, when you see the people and you know their faces and their names and you're, it's hard not to get involved. But I also will never claim that I know everything because I don't. I don't understand everything that goes on and the politics of it all. But I see the people and I care about them and I love them. And I don't want them to suffer anymore. So if I can help them, it's hard for me to understand politics behind it. Because there's always politics behind it. Hmm. But the boats still come and people still die on the voyage and the journey. So majority just wait and wait and wait. What is it that they're waiting for? What is the trigger? What is the... They're, they're hoping to gain asylum in a country and most of them have family members because most of the people that travel uh have money or had money a lot of the really poor people are still stuck in syria or in iraq or in congo so they had money and so they, they've had family members go before when the borders were open when you could just go anywhere in europe and so they have family members in germany and in holland and in france and they're all trying to reunite so that's that's most of their dream is to make it there. But unfortunately, they're very misled 
on the journey it takes and how long it will take for them to arrive. I think some won't ever make it. They'll get deported. Afghanistan right now was just marked the least peaceful country on the, in the world. And they're still deporting people back to it. I don't understand why that is. So there's a lot of, like I said, it's, it's grim. It's, it's not easy to swallow for people. And sometimes I have a hard time talking about this stuff because I can see the sort of glazed look that people get where it's just too much for them to comprehend or handle. And I understand because it's, it's heavy, right? It's, it's things that we can't necessarily solve. Um, so it's kind of a new experience to be able to like speak freely <laughs> about this because I don't, I don't want to burden anybody more. Right. Well, I, you know, I think um, people listening to this podcast are, are interested. Yeah. You know, everybody sees, sees the problems, you know, it's, it's, it's in their heart to want to help. Right. So to see your pathway, how you became one of the helpers, you know, might open up pathways for other people. Oh, I could try that. I could do that too, yeah. you know? I hope so. Yeah. Because we need you. <laughs> we need everybody that can. And even if it's a small way, I, I, I really don't want it to seem like I expect everybody to go my path because mine has been unique to me and will be to you, right. whoever decides. Well, you know, just helping the refugees that are right here all around exactly. us. They're so, here. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. This has been such an eye-opening conversation on so many levels. So what's next for Caitlin Ray? It seems to me you've already packed a few lifetimes into your 27 years. Where do you go from here, Caitlin? I don't know where I will be next. That is a great question. Do you feel like you're at an important crossroads in your life? Kind of, yeah. Trying to figure out how I mesh my two lives together. That's how it feels. I, I feel like I have this other life that's abroad and then this life here at home. And I've been focusing mostly abroad. Um, but somehow I've got to make the two work in some way. And I, I don't know what that is yet. But I do know that in some way I want to always be involved in this work, whether it's small or large. Well, thank you. Thank You're you welcome. for agreeing thank to you. this interview. <laughs> thank you for I hope you settle here in Texas for a while. Yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Life has a lot of fun adventures ahead. I've been talking to refugee aid worker Caitlin Ray, and I can't help but feel I've been in the presence of great nobility. To learn more about how to help refugees in your area, go to iwasastranger.lds.org. That's all for tonight, folks. It's time to bank the fire and call in the dogs. Till next time, this has been Janie Nilsson on Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices. Good night, everybody.